Have you ever wondered what happens when you make an entire business off of parasitic fungi that infect the larvae of ghost moths and grow from the head of a dead caterpillar? No? Well, our guest today is Alex Dorr, and he is going to talk to you about Mushroom Revival, a functional mushroom farm and extract producer specializing in Cordyceps militaris, also known as the zombie fungus, which is pretty metal. Um, they also grow reishi, lion's mane, and more. And speaking of those types of mushrooms, I went on my first official group mushroom foray over the weekend. We didn't find any cordyceps. Those only grow in a very specific region of the Himalayas. But while we didn't find that, we found some Amanita muscaria, which was uh, really cool to see. That's the, the red one with the dots. Looks like the emoji, you know. Also looks like Toad from Mario. Um, we also found the crown jewel of Colorado, the porcini mushroom. Um, fun fact of the day, in Colorado, porcini are mycorrhizal with the Engelman spruce tree, which means that they share a underground resource exchange network with that tree. So when you're out looking for porcini mushrooms, um, you want to identify these types of trees and look on the outskirts of their root networks. Um, that's where we found a bunch of them actually which was pretty cool since it's early in their season um colorado also has the blue spruce tree which is like kind of looks more like a christmas tree it's got shorter and sharper needles and is generally taller um, and that one doesn't typically form relationships with porcini so um, if you can identify the right tree you're basically halfway towards finding the mushroom you're looking for just a little nugget i learned over the weekend which i wanted to share but anyways, Alex and I had a great conversation. Um, we started off talking about psilocybin mushrooms and the state of the psychedelic industry, um, went over some challenges of running a functional mushroom company, some cool topics that he's learned from his own podcast, talked a bit about sustainability, and just a whole lot of other interesting stuff. So I hope you enjoy. Um, a couple housekeeping notes. If you do enjoy this podcast, I would really love if you could subscribe and review on whichever platform you're listening to. This helps tremendously, especially since this thing is just getting off the ground. Also, really exciting, um, if you're in Denver, I'm throwing a launch party for the podcast this Saturday. So if you want to come to that, um, shoot me a note on Instagram or email, and I will send you some details uh, I, I do live in a one-bedroom right now, so there's not a ton of room, but we'll make it work. Um, I have a few guys lined up, but if you feel you have some experience you want to share, or you just want to say hi and have a question or something, just shoot me a note um, on email or Instagram. My email is remarkablemushroomemporium at gmail.com, and my Instagram is at remarkable mushroom emporium um, so you can also find my website uh, remarkable mushroom emporium.com the website is live and merch is available um, i am offering custom tie-dyed t-shirts and sweatshirts uh, they look really cool if i do say so myself um, and i'm doing some like bleached sweatshirts and uh, some reverse tie-dyed t-shirts um, from the darker colors. So uh, check that out if you're interested and feel so inclined to support the podcast and the business. 
And then last thing I wanted to mention, I am moving at the end of this month or beginning of August. Um, so I'm going to have a lot more space, which is exciting to grow my mushrooms. Um, I'm really focused on creating a, a better workspace right now. I'm just growing in my closet and it's working, but it's not, you, you can really only grow so much. So I'm really hoping once I move to ramp up my own extract making, continue growing gourmet mushrooms and uh, hopefully start selling those soon. So that was a really long intro, so I'm going to stop talking. Um, let's just go ahead and get into the podcast. Um, here is me and Alex Dorr. Enjoy. Right now, joining me is Alex Dorr of uh, Mushroom Revival. Mushroom Revival is a uh, functional mushroom farm and also a uh, podcast um, that you can go check out. Uh, so, Alex, thank you for being on with me. How are you today? Good, man. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate of course. it. Congrats on, um, on this podcast. It, that's exciting. So I think we can start uh, with just, I would love to hear about your journey um, through mushrooms and mycology. Um, I know you had sort of a, a unique experience at university um, uh, picking your major as mycology, which, you know, 10 years ago was, was pretty rare. Um, so can you, can you just talk about that a little bit and how you got involved with this whole world? Yeah, yeah. Uh... You, yeah, you nailed the introduction. I mean, it was t 10 years ago, almost to the, to the day. Uh, and I was starting college or university and, uh, I, it was orientation week and, um, someone long story short, someone offered me a, um, some mushrooms, a red solo cup filled to the brim with mushrooms, uh, <laughs> and, uh, they said, yeah, if you know, you can have it for free if you eat it all on the spot. And um, I didn't know what a dose was. <laughs> First time eating mushrooms. So I was like, all right, yeah, <laughs> let's do it. Uh, and at the time, you know, I, I smoked a bunch of weed. So I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm like used to altered states. Like what, how different can it be? <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, I knew they were safe. And, you know, um, I was like, okay, yeah, let's do it. I feel the need to mention that while this worked for Alex, it's not necessarily the best idea to take a solo cup full of mushrooms that you don't know how much you're taking. Um, you know, it, it worked and um, may work for a lot of people, uh, but psychedelics are so personal and so different depending on just your brain and how things affect you. Um, I can tell you the first time that I had like a full on trip was at Bonnaroo in 2018 and I took an eighth which is a lot for you know somebody who's inexperienced but uh it was not the best time I I had a, a kind of a rough experience and I actually stayed away from psilocybin mushrooms for a couple of years based on that experience um, I just thought they weren't for me and it wasn't until recently that I started reading up on it and um, understanding, you know, the actual benefits and how to use them correctly. So just want to throw that in there that you might not want to 
do what Alex did. <laughs> but hey, you know, if, if you feel like you can handle it, um, Alex obviously has a predisposition to uh, enjoying psychedelic experiences. So it might work for you, but just wanted to throw that little bit of harm reduction in there. And to, to, to put it bluntly, it was completely life-changing. You know, I was on multiple pharmaceuticals at the time. I flushed them down the toilet the next day. Um, I, you know, was drinking heavily. I was smoking cigarettes heavily. I, I quit them. Um, totally changed my life. And that basically uh, opened the door to me to mushrooms. And I was like, all right, if, if these things are this life-changing what else is out there? You know, I, I bought every book that I could off Amazon. I signed up for every single class, every internship, and I just got hooked, you know, and I was learning more about what mushrooms and fungi could do. And we'd just go out in the woods and pick as many as I could. And they would like raw on the table before I could ID them all. And I was just addicted to this new world that like no one was talking about and no one was was researching and I was just, I was trying to discover as much as possible. And it, it just felt like I, I found the Holy grail and like no one was realizing their, their potential. Um, and it's just severely understudied as a whole, but especially here in the quote unquote West, like it's just, it's not, it's severely underappreciated. And that to me, I've always been interested in, in like, counterculture black sheep sort of things and so for me that was like even more exciting is because i could be in the frontier of something new and exciting that not a lot of other people were doing and so that's that's how i got started and then over the years right before graduating um i changed my major to micromediation how fungi can clean up toxic waste. I, I wrote a whole book as my final thesis, but at the same time I got, I got um, Lyme disease from a tick and was bedridden, had a bunch of different health issues going on. And so that introduced me to functional mushrooms and using them to help support my, my overall health from, from brain fog to energy, et cetera. So that really opened the door to Mushroom Revival and the birth of our company. And uh, yeah, and now it's, it's. Uh, I think every day I'm realizing that I know less about mycology and mushrooms, which is awesome. I feel like every day I'm realizing that I know less uh, and the world is just getting bigger and bigger, which is, it's awesome. I feel like my beginner, sparkly eyes have just like grown since day one uh has gotten a little more grounded but also is equally as exciting which is is fun yeah man uh absolutely and i'd love to circle back to um mushroom revival and functional mushrooms in a bit but uh let's just talk about like the psychedelic aspect for a second because i think your experience that you described um is not necessarily unique these days um like a lot of people have that sort of mind altering and uh, mindset breaking experience um, that you had. And that was a big part of my journey towards finding mycology as well. Um, and I don't know how, if I'm sure you heard about this, but the uh, 
I live in Denver and um, the MAPS conference, the Psychedelic Research Conference was here recently, largest psychedelic conference in history, which is pretty wild. Um, I'd, I'd, li I'd like to get your thoughts on that because uh, I have sort of mixed feelings. It's like, uh, it's great, obviously, for the advancement of this research, but it's also like very capitalistic and um, lots of people maybe just in it for the money. Um, do you feel that way or do you feel like the positives outweigh the, the cons maybe? I, I mix just like you and, um, you touched upon pretty much everything that I feel as well. I didn't go to the event for those reasons. Um, I'm just, to me, it feels like a giant gold rush of, uh, and most of it feels incredibly inauthentic to me. And so I didn't. I didn't go because I didn't want to spend any money to be surrounded by that energy. Yeah. Um, I just feel like it's moving further away from mushrooms and really their potential. But at the same time, it's like, yes, and <laughs> it's going to open the door for so many people's healings that they can't get anywhere else, you know, um, treatment resistant depression. This could be the only saving grace for people or, you know, various addictions, PTSD. I mean, like there are going to be tons of people that their lives are going to be totally changed around for the better because of this. At the same time, yeah, there's going to be, there is a lot of money hungry people that, are, you know, this is the next gold rush. They don't give a shit about helping people. They don't give a shit about mushrooms. They just want to make a quick buck. And uh, yeah, there's going to be that shadiness happening. So it's a mix. I'm like, I'm excited. And at the same time, I'm like, ugh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's complicated. You know, it's, um, I'm still trying to figure out my place in, in this whole scene. Um, I've been working with psilocybin for the last 10 years. And for years, I would take it every single day. And uh, I'm pretty familiar with the space. Um, and at the same time, it's humbled me enough to where I maybe many years ago, I would be excited to like lead someone in in a trip. And like, I would, <laughs> I, I would be really uh, zealous to like, start a company and be like, oh yeah, I'm super confident and whatever. And now I've had enough terrifying <laughs> experiences that I'm like, oh yeah, I don't want to be responsible <laughs> for other people's freakouts. And it's, it's a lot, it's a lot of work and responsibility that I don't think a lot of people grasp of like, there's a lot of trauma out there and like, you're responsible for holding that space for people. And I don't, I don't think a lot of people coming into it, seeing dollar signs in their eyes, fully grasp the the depth of that um, yeah. and how impactful and deep that can be. Um, and so I'm just, I feel like I'm approaching it extremely lightly uh, because I realize how powerful it is. And so we'll see how it how it comes. But in the meantime, I just have my personal relationship with it and I'll continue for the rest of my life. And if I never uh, do anything more with that, I'm I'm super happy. <laughs> yeah, and that's great. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, and that's why like education around this stuff is so important. Um, because yeah, like you said, a lot of people have trauma that they might not even know they have until <laughs> it comes to the surface. Um, so it's a big responsibility for anyone that, that takes that on. Um, I also wanted to ask you about uh, microdosing because I know you've been doing that for a while. Um, how has that like impacted your mental health and in what ways is that different than like, you know, the macro dose experience that you described earlier? Yeah, I'm, I'm extremely controversial on this topic. Uh, and I've, I piss a lot of people off <laughs> with, <laughs> with, uh, my stance on it. And I, again, like, I like to be a rabble rouser and like, you know, there's been probably like a dozen studies in the last five years that show that subperceptual microdosing is complete placebo or non-differential from placebo. Um, that being said, it works really, really well. <laughs> so placebo works really, really well. <laughs> uh, and, and, and we see this, you know, time and time again with like, you know, pharmaceutical grade painkillers being about the same as placebo. And it's like, placebo is really powerful. And so I, my stance is that, again, it's mixed. If it's working for you, great. Even if it's placebo, if it's working, that's all that matters. But at the same time, I feel like if people are only doing subperceptual microdoses, and 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 if people don't understand that term, it's it's taking a dose below the amount where you perceive it, you know. And so people say to find the right dose, you you uh, you take you know maybe like 0.1 grams, and then you keep increasing it into the point where you start to feel it, and then you go right under that level, and that's your sweet spot. I disagree with that mentality. I think you should go right above. <laughs> and I'm all of, about um, perceptual microdoses. And that for me has been, after doing this for 10 years, for years, every single day, um, or at least, you know, a few times a week at the, at the bare minimum, I found the most life-changing experiences for me, be, like not including macrodoses, but just talking about uh, smaller ones, is when, you know, there's this running joke in the community of like, oops, that wasn't a microdose <laughs> and people claiming they took too much. Right. And, and then they, they're like doing their every day and then they start to feel it <laughs> and they're like, oh, <laughs> and maybe, you know, maybe people listening had that experience as well. You're like mid conversation and it hits you and you're like, oh shit, like, <laughs> you know, it's too much. But I feel like for me, those times where that's happened to me have honestly been the most life-changing because I have to adapt real time and I can integrate real time. And it's really shining a light on the things that I need to work with. And I could do it as I'm navigating real life, but it's not too much where it's debilitating. It's just enough to where, you know, I'm aware of my social anxiety or I'm, I'm aware of some really uncomfortable truths and I have to literally breathe through it, use all the tools in my tool belt and navigate it real time and then integrate it real time in my life. 
Whereas a a macro dose, sometimes like you take too much and it's extremely overwhelming. Uh, I've, I've had times where like, it's so much that I kind of like black out or like, I'll just go to sleep just cause it's so much for my psyche. Um, where it's just like, you know, it, I tap out, um, or there, and, and it takes like sometimes days or weeks or years to integrate that where just above perceptual microdose, it's like enough to make you uncomfortable right outside your comfort zone, but it's, not enough to where it takes forever to integrate. You're like so thrown off. Like you can make really small baby step changes in your life. So that's that's my approach. Um, you know, I, I feel like if people were only doing subperceptual microdoses and never had anything else, I feel like they're missing out um, to to form a really solid relationship with with psilocybin and. Um, to really, you know, make lasting impact, impactful changes in their lives. Great. And so for, yeah, that, that's, that's basically my stance. I feel like for me, for me, I feel like the main changes in my life, um, going back to your, to your question is, um, is yeah, you know, I can talk about like, creativity and depression, anxiety, and all the things that everybody says. But for me, it's really like a perspective shift mm-hmm. um, and and dissolving a lot of the societal lenses that were applied to me um, from birth, from you know the government, from my teachers, from parents. A simple example would be like, I have to mow my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a funny example, but it, it it happened recently where it's like I let my lawn grow wild. And for me, it was like seeing nature in a different way after taking mushrooms so many times where it's it's not something that I feel I need to control. Like who am I? I'm just another species, right? Like who am I to to like feel like I I control the species in my lawn and like I need to cut them and like kill them and do all these things. It's like, like they, they deserve their own life and and their life cycle. And like to dissolve this filter in my mind that that's somehow ugly or it needs to be well manicured for me to be at peace or, you know, to find peace in observing all the all the species that just pop up and all the wild species that pop up, and it's a funny example yeah. that it's like it it makes me it makes it harder for me to form a relationship with my na- my neighbors because <laughs> they see it and they're like, dude, what the fuck? <laughs> uh, and not a lot of people get it, right? And so it's like for me, taking a lot of mushrooms, it um it helps me view the world in a different way, which is a pro and a con. Uh, and it's it's strengthened my ability to be able to shape shift because it's like oh, okay well people most people live in society and view the world in a certain stagnant way and to be able to like live in society I, I can't I can't be so much of a rebel where everybody hates me <laughs> or just like completely doesn't understand so I need to shape shift to be to be able to like play the game and also like 
see the world without so many layers yeah. if that makes any sense at all i don't know if i did a good job of, of communicating that but no i i, but I, I think hear what you're saying the biggest change yeah yeah um i watched a video on the lawn topic about like how when people first moved to america um the united states i should say uh it was like a status symbol because it was like so expensive and difficult to grow um, that like only rich people could afford it. So it became like a, a desirable thing to have like a, a lawn in your front yard. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a British concept from <laughs> colonialism. Like it, it, it's so outdated. And once you like learn the history about it and see it as it is, it's, it's a funny concept. <laughs> but you know it's it's something that you know we were brainwashed into believing you know you got to have your nuclear family with a white picket fence and your one species lawn and like kill the pests and like right, you know yeah. it's like yeah it's it's it it helps to control the masses etc that's a whole rabbit hole but um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it 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 helps me connect to biodiversity and species as a whole and like get back out in the woods and connect to the real, you know, which is just being with nature and realizing we're, we're all just organisms coexisting with other organisms. Mushrooms are one of them and mushrooms are pretty damn cool. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Okay. So let's, let's talk a little bit about mushroom revival. Um, can you tell me like what made, what led you to the decision? I know you, um, you know, were studying microremediation for a while. Uh, what made you shift into this uh, functional mushroom growing and education type role that you're doing now? Yeah, so I feel like my main three interests, uh, and they they kind of share one main uh, intention, and so it's microremediation, functional mushrooms, and uh, and psilocybin, and the and the main overlap is is really like healing mm -hmm. you know and so it's whether it's healing the earth the body or the soul uh the the main intention is is healing through mushrooms and while i was studying microremediation i realized that grassroots microremediation doesn't really work as well as you know a lot of blog articles online and and books like to like to say um, it, it's kind of a feel-good story, but really microremediation that works is insanely industrial. It's it's um, insanely complicated with massive bioreactors and lots of organic chemistry. And I realized that that's just not my strong suit. And I would have to go on to get my PhD and and like... You know, I flunked out of organic chemistry. Like, it's just not my... Other people in the world are way more adept at, at, at that skill set. So I kind of, you know, I made my peace with it. And I was like, okay, this isn't... I'm very interested in it. But to actually make a meaningful impact, I don't really have the skill set for it. And I'll let other people do it. And I'll just root them root them on from the sideline. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and then psilocybin at the time, you know, I was like, okay, I can't do this legally and I don't want, like, I'm just going to be so paranoid if I just, you know, live a secret life growing this or whatever. Like, I'm just going to be so bad for my mental health. Um, this was 10 years ago when like the thought of decriminalization was like 
so unheard yeah. of. Now it's now it's getting different, but that left functional mushrooms as like the only meaningful route that I could take where I could change people's lives, do it legally, something that, you know, help change my life that I can help other people. It could pay, it could pay my bills. Um, something that I was good at. So that's where mushroom revival was born. And then the podcast, I'd say like a year or two later. Um, and so, yeah, that's what we're focused on now. Cool. Um, so I know you grow all sorts of, um, different types of functional mushrooms. Uh, would it be fair to say cordyceps are the breaded butter? Yeah, that's, that's where mushroom revival really started was, um, making our cordyceps farm. And, you know, I've been in the gourmet mushroom growing industry for many years. And so I, you know, grew thousands and thousands of pounds of like shiitake every single week. And, you know, most mushrooms, they have kind of the same cultivation techniques. And I was getting a little bored of it. It's, it's <laughs> a lot of mushroom growing is, is extremely, um, robotic in nature. Like it's the same exact <laughs> techniques over and over again for like thousands of <laughs> thousands and thousands and thousands of times a day. Uh, and at the end of it, end of the day, like it can be done by a robot, unfortunately. And so, you know, it gets a little old. And so I, I needed to switch things up a little bit. And so cordyceps were just like this weird, you know, it's not even basidiomycota, like it's ascomycota, totally different life cycle, totally different growing techniques. And so the way to grow it was way freaking different, different substrate, different growing, like every step of the journey was completely different. And so it was a puzzle that I needed to figure out. Um, and so that was really exciting. And so, and it was something that it, it actually was first grown in the U S and, and, uh, in the 1800s, but it really blew up in Asia and the U S just kind of like stopped growing it for, you know, a hundred years or so. And then now, now a couple of people are, are growing it here, but really, you know, in China, Thailand, Japan, they, they have it on lock. Um, and so it's, it's, yeah, we have a long way to go in terms of our mushroom culture here in terms of like cultivating mushrooms, in terms of functional mushrooms research. Yeah. Um, we're really far behind in the U S and so it's, it, it's an exciting time to like learn from a lot of Asian countries and like how they do things. And, uh, yeah, it's exciting for mushrooms in general, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, I feel like a lot of the mushrooms you mentioned, like wood eating mushrooms, uh, it's, it's easy to see how their, uh, life cycle is mimicked in, you know, commercial applications. Um, but cordyceps are entomopathic pathogenic. I can never say that word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. They, they, so they parat parasitize insects. How exactly do you mimic that when it comes to cultivating them? You know, the weird thing is that they don't need insects and, um, they can just be grown on like a nutri nutrient dense rice, uh, substrate. Okay. And so rice with, you know, some nutritional yeast and some other stuff. Um, which is cool. Like, you know, there are some growers in Thailand and China that like inject 
silkworms and like grow them out of those, which I'm like, why? <laughs> <laughs> like, if you don't need to, why? Yeah. That's kind of weird. Um, but people do it and, and, uh, but yeah, we could grow it totally vegan, which was, which is cool. And, and I visited, uh, there's a cordyceps museum in, uh, outside of Shanghai, China. Oh, that's sweet. And they have, uh, 91 different species of entomopathogenic fungi on display where they figured out how to grow it. And they figured out every single one could be grown without insects. Uh, whereas in the wild, they grow off insects. And so this was kind of a cool discovery with entomopathogenic fungi is like they can be grown on a different substrate than what they're found in in the wild, but it doesn't make the process easier in any way. They're like extremely finicky. A lot of times they are really slow growing and they're just open to a lot of competition and so it's extremely easy one to get contamination the whole growing technique is just like really weird um and the culture cements really easily and by that it means that the they just start to degrade and so a viable culture or strain that you have maybe in uh in april by like june or july or august it just stops kind of it it kind of like grows old and tired and stops fruiting and like you know which is not really the same with other mushrooms it's it's really like entomopathogenic fungi that this happens and honestly i'm not really sure why <laughs> i'm sure the answer is out there somewhere but uh you know and and a lot of researchers are figuring out how to prolong that longevity but it's it's just like active breeding just like always developing new strains and so that's another hard part is like the whole genetics of of constantly developing new genetics whereas other other mushroom species like yeah you you get one good commercial strain and it's good for like decades <laughs> you know as long as you upkeep it like it's good um for cordyceps it's good for like a few months and then it's it's out you know, maybe six months if you push it, but then you got to develop a whole new strain and it's hard. It's, it's really complicated. And so, which is, but it also makes the whole process way more re rewarding, yeah. right? If it's, it's like this super hard thing and you finally cracked it and you get a flush of mushroom, like cordyceps mushrooms in front of you, you're like, fuck yeah, dude. Like, that's awesome. So yeah, I, I wanted the challenge. I got it. And uh, we de we definitely cracked the co the code in in a big way. That's sweet. Yeah, um, I would love to one day take a crack at it. I know you guys have like a, a YouTube video where you lay out the whole process, which is super cool. Because um, I was listening to your podcast on uh, Micropreneur, um, and you yeah. you mentioned that that was intentional. You know, you could have patented it and like kept it as your intellectual property, but you made the decision to um, put it out into the world, um, which I just think is, uh, is really cool. I think that's like a very, um, the, the kind of grassroots organiz or, um, community of, of mycology, I think a lot of people are like that um, and just want to share the knowledge and grow the field, which uh, is admirable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, any any information on 
mushroom growing in general, but cordyceps cultivation, you can get for free. Uh, there's a great Facebook page. I think it's just called Cordyceps Cultivation Group. Um, but there's amazing people in there, um, like Ryan Paul Gates. He's I I think he's like definitely number one in the U.S. Uh, in terms of developing new techniques and uh, number one breeder. Um, and he's just like I don't think he's ever charged for any information. And he's always just super active, helping a lot of people. And um, I, I think he's created the most amount of cordyceps cultiva cultivators in the U.S. Um, and has definitely been the most impactful in in our our little subculture here, which is still tiny. But um, yeah, like if any, anyone wants to try it out, definitely get a culture from him and and join the group and and learn every everyone's super helpful um you know and it's there are techniques where you can do it relatively easy you know in like a mason jar when it goes commercial it's a little harder like anything mm -hmm. you know the the second you scale it up you get a whole different class of problems which we realized but but yeah yeah it's still a fun mushroom definitely um do you like have any of your any other favorites that you grow outside of cordyceps? Uh, well, now, you know, we've, we've had many different stages of mushroom revival. And so we used to forage and grow everything in house and make everything in house. And, um, now throughout the years with scaling, now we work with partner farms. And so we have a whole network of sister farms that we work with. A tremella is another one. That's definitely another weird mushroom poria cocos is another because it's a sclerotia and it grows underground like a yam um and so technically not a mushroom it's a sclerotia uh and it looks like it's just like a giant tuber or like yam underground that that one's a weird one um reishi is is like super beautiful to see grow and that one can be grown in a different way um and we work with farmers that actually inoculate logs and bury them underground mm. uh, and grow them outdoors in like these hoop houses. And um, they start to grow up in this high CO2 environment. And so they grow into these like antler shapes or these little like cylindrical finger looking shapes. And then uh, that CO2 pocket is popped. And so there's more oxygen. And then they start to conk out like, um, like UFO flying saucer shapes um and so those are really beautiful to see grown outdoors i love seeing mushrooms cultivated outdoors especially you know on logs and not like in plastic bags indoors it's it looks way better i think they taste better they feel better um and so that's definitely another cool one like i'd love visiting reishi farms and and seeing that specific grow technique is is super cool yeah, reishi are, are something else. All right, cool. So uh, I also wanted to talk about um, sustainability in mushroom growing. Uh, and I think a lot of mushroom farms or just, you know, small scale cultivators are uh, always looking to, you know, create a circular economy, whether it be like sourcing your, uh, your, your substrate from agricultural waste or coffee grounds or something. Um, and then I know at mushroom revival, you have the program where every purchase leads to uh, a tree being planted. Um, 
So yeah, could you just like talk about how Mushroom Revival is is uh, contributing to sustainable efforts? Yeah, you know, we're I'm trying to figure it out at every stage possible. Um, and I don't, I want to be real. And I don't want to like greenwash anything. We're not perfect. Um, uh, the good news and the biggest thing I'm, I'm proud of is that we've planted over 93,000 trees since uh, we started all around the world. And so that that's something that I'm like really passionate about and want to keep doing for the rest of my life. Uh, and I'm, I'm super excited about that. But at the same time, you know, there's certain things that we do that are not as uh, sustainable. Like we have to have a little plastic band for FDA guidelines, like for like a tamper proof seal. And so, yeah, we use plastic or there are certain times that we've used bubble wrap in the past because any other sustainable packaging, just like the glass would break, you know? Um, and we kept trying to, all these different things and like, you know, we used to package our dried cordyceps in, we were the first company, mushroom company in the world to package um, in fully biodegradable packaging, which is, which is fun. Um, it got hard during COVID to find sustainable packaging. Um, and so we had to shift a lot of our things that like were way more sustainable. Like our gummy bags, for example, are 50% post-consumer recycled. Which is like, yeah, that's that's it's cool, <laughs> but it's still plastic, right? And so we're not perfect. We can be a thousand times better. Um, we do work with a lot of farms that use the techniques like the reishi that I was talking about instead of plastic bags or the cordyceps, for example. You know, when we had our farm, we used 100% uh, reusable containers, which is not something that most mushroom farms do. Uh, the main thing that people do is they they use single-use plastic bags and they grow in these plastic bags. At the end of its life cycle, after a couple months, they throw the plastic bags out. And it's their polypropylene number five plastic bags, which is the hardest, or one of the hardest plastics to break down. And nothing, we, we haven't figured out anything to break it down yet. And so it's hard it's a hard site to to go to a mushroom farm and see like dumpsters full of these plastic bags which is kind of like the skeleton in the closet for a lot of farms and so when i made the cordyceps farm i was like we're not going to do that um it's easier it's cheaper to do it that way but you know we 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 had like 30,000 mason jars at one point 40,000 plus um and like that was, I was like, this is great. You know, we're using glass and it's way more sustainable, but then it comes with downside of like, when you go to clean 40,000 mason jars, it's like, yeah. that's insane. Or like moving them or whatever. So it comes with other pains. And then we move to these big plastic bins and it's like, yeah, they're plastic, but we can reuse them forever. Right. And so that helped my consciousness a little bit of like, okay, we're not throwing it away. We can reuse it forever. And so just these little tips and tricks that a lot of Asian countries have figured out of like how to do, you know, mushroom cultures in, in bottles or, you know, these bins or trays or things that like, or logs, things that are a little more eco-friendly that we are learning here in the United States to pick up on. Um, yeah, but I, I think the the biggest thing for us right now is is planting trees. 
um, for carbon sequestration, for environmental protection, for boostering, uh, bolstering, is bolstering the right word? I don't know if that's the right word, but supporting uh, biodiversity as a whole. Um, I think trees are are kind of like a, a a cornerstone for a lot of you know ecosystems where they support fungi, bacteria in the soil. They're houses for animals. They you know cycle CO two and oxygen. Um, they they really they're they're out in the public, and so they're easy for the general public to see as a good win for supporting um, biodiversity. So it it's something that I, I won't stop doing and I, I hope more people will plant trees. And I, I, I like, I always have this thought of like, what if, what if amazon.com did that? You know, if like every, everything you bought planted one tree, like what, <laughs> what would that do for the, the global economy? And like, um, yeah, I, I hope more businesses do that. Definitely. Uh, so what would you do if you had unlimited time and resources? Like where would you take mushroom revival? You know, I have ADHD Same. and, um, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's a hard question because, you know, I've had to really pull the reins on this one and, and, you know, Mycology as a whole, like we've discovered probably 1% of all fungi and it's severely understudied. And so any route that you go is going to be life-changing, world-changing, like first in the world, you're pioneering something really exciting. And so a lot of people getting into mushrooms or mycology, they like, we get this phenomena where People just want to do everything. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, we're doing micromaterials and we're doing microremediation and we're doing functional mushrooms and we're doing, yeah, I just made a, a microdosing company and we're doing this <laughs> and we're doing this. And and it's like, it's awesome. And like, I, I get it why it's so exciting to do all these things. But um, this is something I learned like in English class in like eighth grade is it's better to dig one deep hole than a thousand holes that are a foot mm -hmm. deep uh when looking for like dinosaur bones or whatever <laughs> or like uh ancient artifacts they always gave that example of like if you're writing an essay it's way better to pick one area and just dive dive super super deep and just stick to one hole you know and and so i i've kind of like applied that to um mushroom revival so if i if i had unlimited time and resources like you know, definitely micromaterials, definitely micro-remediation, um, you know, definitely developing new products. Uh, we almost developed a show back in the day. Um, we were going to turn our podcast into, um, oh, what's that show on Netflix? It's like an animated show by Duncan, is it Duncan Trussell? Midnight Gospel. Have you seen that? Oh, I have not seen it. I've seen it keeps getting recommended to me and I, I want to check it out. It's a you should definitely check it out. It's a really good show. Um, but he basically like takes his podcast and then turns it into like an animated show. Um, and I think they're like clips from the podcast, like conversations or whatever. And we hired an animator and we we have like mock-ups and stuff, and like we were gonna turn 
like we were going to heavily edit our podcast to make them like only like the the top point like the really cool points of the conversation and you know uh, be kind of a mix of like animation and real life and like um it turned out to be so expensive and like so time consuming and like really not worth it but i think that would be fun it's just to hire a whole team to just like make a really cool mushroom show and like make it super nerdy but also super fun and super sexy and like super like over the top production and like just awesome like super fun and like a one episode a week uh where people can look forward to and it's just like killer um that would be fun um conservation obviously um and you know as we talked about before still on the fence with psilocybin and and where where i feel like would would help the most amount of people yeah nice um so yeah let's let's talk about the podcast a little bit so for anyone listening who doesn't know um alex uh hosts a podcast it's also called the mushroom revival podcast um and i i really enjoy it you get really smart knowledgeable uh guests on your show is there something that like you've learned from one of these guests that just blew your mind i all the time it's <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't, I don't even know how many years it's been going, like four years or something. And we have pretty much had a guest almost every single week in that four years and from all different topics. And so, yeah, we've had some wild people on the show that like, I love the feeling of, like I was describing in the beginning of being completely humbled of being like, I don't know anything about <laughs> fungi and mushrooms like and we have some some guests that come on that like i don't know anything about the topic they're researching sometimes i do i i, I know a little bit but sometimes it's like like the first person that comes to mind is we had someone come on i'm drawing a blank on their name so apologies if they're listening but um they were talking about bacteria and fungi relationships and that fungi have their own microbiome I found the episode Alex is mentioning here. It's called How Fungi and Bacteria Interact. Um, and again, that's the Mushroom Revival podcast. It was released uh, January 18, 2022. So you might have to scroll a little bit. But I will add a link to the episode um, into the show notes. And the guest, by the way, is Dr. Jesse Euling from Oregon State. And that was just like... And, and they we're kind of like in this theory that um that bacteria were kind of like controlling the world <laughs> you know and like they were responsible they were kind of like the puppeteers playing fungi like a puppet and sometimes they would play fungi to play plants yeah. right so like they would withhold nutrients from the fungi to make them act a certain way or like send chemical signals similar to us like oh, yeah. we're we're like 90 percent other organisms and we're just tapping into the research that like what is it 90 percent of our serotonin is produced in our gut 75 percent of our immune system is in our gut and that our micro and microbiome is significant in terms of our of our personality in terms of our decision making day to day and like we think we have control but it's really like bacteria in our gut making us do and say and think everything 
<laughs> and feel everything, right? And so it's it can go one step further that it's it's you know bacteria and fungi making them do all this wild stuff and like maybe even with cordyceps it's not even the fungi taking over the insect it's like the bacteria making the fungi take over the insect so the bacteria can somehow do something like who knows like so that was pretty mind blowing that's the first thing that comes to mind and there's a million others that yeah it it's it's fun to interview all these these cool people yeah absolutely um, that's kind of why I wanted to start this podcast. I just feel like uh, getting to talk with like you and and last week, my guest Henry Caridnan, um has been great just to like, I don't know, I always learn something. Um, and it's just a good way of learning while also educating. Um, and yeah, on the on the bacteria topic, I read this book, you might like, it's called The Hidden Half of Nature. Um, and it talks basically like the first half is about like soil chemistry and how bacteria and fungi control that. And then the second half is about like our microbiome. And um, I, I just, it's, it's very cool to realize like how little we know about like the micro world and also like outer space. It's like kind of, we know, we know a little bit, a tiny bit in the middle, but we don't know anything on either end of the spectrum. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of really, exciting areas um, of, of research going on. Uh, on that topic, is there anything like uh, that you've that you've learned recently? Any like area of research or learning in the mushroom world that has been really exciting? Um, one, one person that I just interviewed, they are studying electric electrical signals in fungi and there's a couple of researchers out there um you know like there there is the potential to make more eco-friendly batteries which i think is is insanely important as we're migrating away from using fossil fuels and more into an electric economy is that we need better batteries and lithium ion batteries are insanely uh destructive to the environment and to people's lives and it's just not good and so if we can make a bio battery that's awesome but beyond that what they were studying is that we could potentially decode the language that fungi is using uh, using these electrical patterns and potentially figure out a way to not only figure out what they're saying and communicating within a single organism, but across organisms, but then we have the potential to communicate with them, <laughs> which is wild. <laughs> and potentially using AI um, to collect all the data and then decipher it in a way to basically like it's a Rosetta stone of the mushroom language or fungi language. And like that each species has a, 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 like a different language or dialect or whatever, like some researchers were figuring out that, um, you know, the way that, you know, Amanita muscaria was quote unquote talking was different from like this Rusula, right? And so it was like, oh, it's it's and it's same for us like maybe you know um you speak russian and they speak spanish it's like yeah we have different languages different ways to communicate um 
so that that was def- that was the most recent episode and that was a wild <laughs> a wild theory and uh, i i hope we we crack the code on that one this one is called the secret electrical language of mushrooms with you fukusawa and i listened to it and it is fascinating so i would definitely recommend checking that out it just came out june 7th so it should be pretty close to the top of uh, of the queue Okay. Oh, I did want to ask you about your book. Um, you just you just wrote a or a, a, the little book of mushrooms, right? Um, you want to talk about that for a little? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, my first mushroom book was in 2017, the Micromediation Handbook, and since then, you know, I wrote a few other ones, but they were like not taken seriously. They were like little eBooks to offer for free on our website. Um, but this one was the first book that I've written that was published by um, by a publishing company. And th- this one was uh, Simon and Schuster. Um, it was published in May. And they're a, they're a pretty big publishing company. And I was like, they reached out to me, which is super exciting. I've been offered many kind of offers by many different publishing companies over the years and I've I've kind of turned them all down just cuz it takes it's a lot of time to write a book and a lot of energy and I'm just like I don't have the time to do it um and this was the first one where they had pretty they had the name of the book they had the cover art they had all the art already made they had basically the whole layout already made and they're like we just need an author to write boom 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 and they were just super succinct and they're like you have one month <laughs> you win a, you win or you out we need we need to we need to have your answer in 48 hours or you know this offer is retracted and so they was like whoa yeah <laughs> okay and so i was like fuck it yeah let's do it and i yeah it was like a month to write the whole thing and it was crazy timeline i was writing for like 16 18 hours a day Jeez. um like totally under the crunch of this deadline. Like, I don't know how I did it. It was insane. The, like how quickly this thing came together and, uh, yeah, it came out great. It's, it's, uh, there's a little introduction and all things mushrooms and then, um, little kind of highlights on 75 different mushrooms. And it's, um, it's like 250 plus pages. It's, it's kind of a, a smaller book so you can take it around places and it it's for me it's the perfect book for me i love books that i can flip around yeah. with i hate books that i have to read from cover to cover Ugh, like they're the worst <laughs> like I, I they bore the shit out of me like i cannot stand a book that i have to read in a certain order like again my adhd mind like i love textbooks i love certain things that like if I want to learn about chanterelles and I want to go down that rabbit hole, I'm going to flip to page 79 and go down that rabbit hole. And then page 79 talks about this other mushroom. I'm going to flip to page 161 and go down that rabbit hole. Like that's the way I like to read. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's just the way my brain works. And so this book was like perfect to offer that for other people that had the same brain workings as me. For sure. Yeah. I definitely want to check it out. Um, is it a what what like what, is there a theme of the type of mushrooms or is it just like a general you know most popular mushrooms that you might find 
in the water. Yeah, there's there, there's a lot of um, super popular mushrooms, but uh, I also tried to pick mushrooms that were just weird. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's one Ophiocordyceps in there that grows on a tarantula that I just think <laughs> is wild. That's um, awesome. Yeah, I mean, there's just like there's some really popular mushrooms, and then there's some really kind of rare mushrooms that I put in there that are just cool. <laughs> that are just, I mean, they like, they look cool. They have a weird life cycle that, you know, if if this was on someone's coffee table, I want them to pick it up and read it and be like, what the hell? <laughs> like that thing exists. And it's like, yeah, like, you know, that has a w- wild shape or colors or does something something weird in nature that I think is is worthy to have its own page. And so I, I try to kind of balance it between really weird and unique and then and then mushrooms that like anybody should know you know um like amanita muscaria or porcini or oyster mushrooms like you got to know those right what's an oyster mushroom i don't know it's uh (laughs) i i i I read it somewhere (laughs) i i hear it's pretty good i hear it's pretty popular yeah all right man um that I think was about all my questions. We're uh, right at time. So um, anything else that you want to plug? Anything that you're working on that you want to uh, tell the people about? Um, yeah, check out mushroomrevival.com. We have uh, a whole line of functional mushroom products on there. You can get the book on there. We have a bunch of free resources as well, a bunch of blog posts and free eBooks and uh, a lot of all of our podcasts are there as well. Um, I thought of one more question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what's uh, what's your functional mushroom routine like? What do you what do you take on a daily or weekly basis generally? As as much as I humanly can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah, guess you, I, I guess uh, your supply is not a problem for you. <laughs> nope, nope, and uh, the demand is still incredibly high. So yeah, we yeah, I go way above the suggested dose for sure and uh, as as much as i can really um but but kind of closing statements you know if people are like getting into mushrooms and they i think if i could offer one piece of advice for people is um and this is a quote by terence mckenna where he says avoid gurus follow plants and i think the same thing applies to mushrooms where um people get caught in this this bubble where they follow certain influencers in the space and it limits their connection to mushrooms and fungi. Um, and so if you're entering the space, just I, I would avoid people <laughs> and, and turn to fungi and mushrooms. You know, um, if you if you really want a, a, a close relationship, you, you got to form it yourself and 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 like don't don't have a middleman in the way, like not even me, like, (laughs) like form your own relationship, get in the woods and, and turn that thinking brain off for a little bit and just like form your relationship. And, uh, and like I said, we've only discovered like 1% of mushrooms. There's infinite things that you could do in this field. You can be the pioneer in anything that you want. And so if that interests you of doing groundbreaking work, you can literally do it. Um, if you put your mind to it, you will be the first in the world on anything you put your mind to, especially in this field. And I think that's pretty cool. So, all right. So yeah, that's that's well, my final wrap. 
if you're listening to this podcast, uh, stop listening and go out into the woods. <laughs> that, that's what we'll leave with. You with. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thanks again for doing this. I really appreciate it. Sweet. Well, thanks for bringing me on. And thanks right. for listening, everybody. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Alex Dorr. Have a good one, man. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in, especially those of you that stuck around until the end. You, you all deserve a round of applause. Good job. Um, yeah, so that was great. I really enjoyed that talk with Alex. Theme music that you're hearing right now is Lacuna by Cloudcord featuring Sun Squabby. Um, thank you to him for letting me use that song. I am a big fan. Um, go check him out if you haven't. And Sun Squabby, they're one of my favorites. They're going to be playing in Denver um, in August for free, actually. So uh, look that up. Uh, also, just wanted to say that uh, that's it. <laughs> I, I did like three takes of this where I tried to improvise a poem. And they all turned out terribly because I'm not good at poetry. And I don't know how to make words with my mouth sometimes, especially in my current tired state. So I am going to simply say goodbye. Ooh.